This is Living While Dying, an ALS story from Minnesota Public Radio News. I'm Kathy Warzer. I have to be honest with you, it's getting harder to record these installments because we're nearing the end of Bruce Kramer's story. Bruce amazed his friends and family by living an incredibly full, quite busy life, despite a body that was slowly and steadily deteriorating because of ALS. At the end of 2014, he and I had finished the manuscript for a University of Minnesota Press book. We know how this ends, Living While Dying, and he was looking forward to its publication at the end of March 2015. We wrote it quickly, Bruce joking that we were truly on a deadline. As I've said, he had a quirky sense of humor. Leading into the holidays, Bruce's health took several hits. He battled through a couple of low-grade infections that sapped his waning energy. When we sat down for an interview after he felt better, check, 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 check. it was clear that recovering from them was a very slow process. Oh, Bruce Kramer, what have you been thinking about lately? That is a very good question. As you know, I have been a little under the weather besides ALS. Uh, actually, more than a little. Those symptoms are gone. But in the recovery, I have not come back to where I was. I recognize the uh, the loss of energy, the sense of uh, just not being quite up there doing the tap dancing I was. So, of course, that certainly helps focus me on my mortality. Interestingly enough, when I was ill, poor Ev asked me, is this it? Are you going to die now? And I looked at her and I said, I don't know. I've never died before. So um, we kind of had a laugh out of that. You have to take them where you can get them at this point. But, um, you know, I'm thinking a lot about uh, just negotiating uh, what I think is going to be a general and very specific weakening of my body. And uh, that's what I've been thinking about. We never told our radio audience, but one other very difficult thing Bruce had been thinking about was whether or not to get a feeding tube implanted. It wasn't as if it was a secret. He and I just never got around to talking about it on audio tape, and the decision had to be made fast because of his weakening condition. Bruce had been keeping his weight up, Good nutrition is a key to living as long as possible with ALS, but he had been having trouble swallowing since July of 2014. He had to concentrate fully when he was eating or drinking so as not to aspirate food or liquid and choke. Even eating and drinking exhausted Bruce. A good friend of his, a neurologist, suggested that it would be easier to have a specific kind of feeding tube inserted so Bruce could get decent nutrition without expending a lot of energy. And in the bargain, his life could possibly be extended for several more months, maybe even a year or so. Well, that sounded pretty good to his friends, including me. As you might expect, Bruce's family became excited, too. What was being offered was the potential for longer survival and better quality of life. Who wouldn't want to grab onto what sounded like such a hopeful proposition? But there was a catch. Bruce's respiratory system was fragile, and it was possible that if something were to happen during the procedure, Bruce would have to be intubated and put on a ventilator, something he absolutely did not want to have happen. He was fearful he'd never get off a ventilator because of his damaged respiratory system. 
Doctors warned that other complications could arise, too. On top of those worries was the knowledge that the kind of feeding tube discussed would have to be replaced on a fairly regular basis, which would have been a big disruption in Bruce's life. Bruce took 10 days to weigh all the information and advice given to him by two different neurologists, two different nurses, a trusted friend at the ALS Association, his sons and his beloved wife, plus his hospice providers. And at the end of it all, he decided against getting a feeding tube. As he wrote in his blog, The Diseased Diary, while doing one more thing to survive is seductive, and while, quote, it is always good to consider the treatment possibilities that do exist, it is just as important to consider how such treatments can disrupt and affect quality of life. One of the key factors in Bruce's decision beyond possible complications and a potentially quicker death was that he also didn't want to give up his hospice team, and that would have been required had he gone ahead with the procedure. The fact is, is that hospice has allowed us to really focus on living, to focus on living as fully as I can in these last months of my life. And at the same time, to know that there will be support for my family in the uh, process of me dying. And um, I think that's a marvelous gift, particularly as I am going through the kinds of things one goes through in the last, the, the last part of their life, asking those questions that we need to ask, saying those things to people that we need to say. That's what I'm being able to concentrate on, not concentrating on whether or not I'm going to have to put up with one more treatment. And so Bruce focused on the business of living, the beauty of living. He continued to listen to his music. For nutrition, he'd favor and savored sea salt and vinegar potato chips. He let them dissolve on his tongue. He also ate a lot of soup, sipped protein drinks, and somehow, very carefully, managed a burger and fries, too. Bruce cherished his time with friends and family, and the woman he always called my one true love. Bruce and his wife, Ev, were married for 33 years. I knew that he was the one the very day I met him. Pretty much the same. Not not that day, but (laughs) by the end of the month, I had a hard time not thinking about her. When they married, Bruce and Ev took wedding vows that most couples do promises to stay together for richer or poorer, in sickness and in health. Those are easy vows to make when a couple is physically robust and active. But even the strongest of relationships can falter in the face of disease and disability. Research shows serious illness can either break up a couple or bring them closer together. Despite the many challenges of a terminal disease like ALS, the marriage of Bruce Kramer and Ev Emerson remains strong until the end. This conversation was recorded in January of 2015. I guess I expected I was going to have 50-plus years with Bruce, and I, I think the way it's changed the most is that I know it's a finite number of days and hours and weeks, so I try to make it count. I try to make every day count. Now unable to move his arms and legs and breathing with the help of an external ventilator, Kramer is completely reliant on Ev, something that has been a shift in their relationship. 
Prior to being diagnosed, Kramer did a lot of the housekeeping and cooking, in addition to working as a dean at the University of St. Thomas. I've gone back and looked at the journaling that I did right after I was diagnosed. And in that, there's a lot that I wrote about where I was very concerned about this change that I could see coming. I realized that these things were all going to go away. And in the process of them going away, my question was, would we be able to survive that kind of change? Ev now handles the chores of running a house and caring for Bruce. But they've managed to avoid the dilemma some couples face when one partner becomes the other's primary caregiver. Many caregivers find themselves taken up with daily tasks like bathing and feeding their partner, which is a far different role than the one they had when first together. Such a change can damage a relationship. Instead, Bruce and Ev have found a deeper sense of intimacy. It seems to me that um, intimacy has to change. Intimacy has to grow. And our definition of, of what keeps us connected has to shift. But it would have to anyway. You know, I, we would have retired someday. Then what? One of us was going to get ill at some point. Then what? So these things are that have happened to us have just happened more quickly than we anticipated. But luckily, we had 30 years of marriage before that really allowed us to um, find the things that we could continue to build the connection and the commitment to each other after I was diagnosed with ALS. Much of the connection Bruce and Ev have was carefully built years earlier on love, respect, and shared interests. Both also fueled the other's dreams. I encouraged Ev with her teaching. She encouraged me with my dreams of travel. And since each was a musician, there was a mutual love of music. There's nothing more intimate than two people making music together. I mean, if you ask me, What do you miss the most? There are so many things I miss. But I miss that piece especially when we would just sight read music together and enjoy this particular line, this particular phrase. And I knew when you were going to breathe before you did. Yeah. (laughs) Well, but. You have to as an accompanist. I love the Brobs piano intermezzos. And one of the reasons I do is because Ev was working on those when we were uh, first getting to know each other. And I would deliver her to a practice room at a local university so she could practice. And then when I'd come to pick her up, I'd stand outside the door and watch her. And I just, I fell in love with her, watching her play these pieces. Known that, I would have covered the window. (laughs) Yeah, I know. So, why do you think I didn't tell you? Can I get back to asking you about dreams, loss of dreams? When you first start out in a relationship, you have this idea of how you want things to go. And, um, that's turned forever upside down 
when you have a diagnosis, especially if there's a terminal illness, there's a tendency, from what I understand, to maybe feel cheated, that those dreams are not going to come true. Did you experience that at first, and how have you overcome that, if you did? Of course we experienced that. I don't know if we have overcome it. I think we still, from time to time, feel cheated. I think one of my dreams was taking my grandkids with Bruce camping because we loved that so much. And obviously that's not going to happen. We talked about it many times that we would take our grandkids traveling with us someplace special. So I don't think we've ever really gotten over that, but we have to go on. We have to be realistic about it. A friend of mine who went through a similar situation as yours said she tried very hard to stay in forgiveness throughout the process because there is, there was for her some anger and obviously grief and you know, a lot of emotions as you help your partner go through something like ALS or any disease for that matter that's serious. And she had to really concentrate on staying in forgiveness, her, her words. Have you had to do that, too? Forgiveness. I I don't know who I would be forgiving. I've tried to stay in acceptance. I think, to me, that is more meaningful than forgiveness. Sometimes it's easy to flip out and be angry again, but I've tried to stay in acceptance because it feels healthier to me. I've had to forgive myself for not being able to do the things that I want to do. And Ev is right. We have found acceptance. We accept what has happened. I think that that acceptance, though, is uh, something far deeper, a gratitude, that the two of us are together still. And the gratitude would come without accepting the situation as it is. Not for as we wish it would be, but as it is. On the next Living While Dying, an ALS story, sensing the tipping point.